I don't think there's a company that hires people unless it's like a brand new startup that is starting everything from scratch that hires only people that write new things, right? Anywhere you go, there is always code that needs to be maintained. And engineers, by nature, they like to write something new. They don't like to maintain. So there's always a balance. Machines are so fast and stores are so big that they give us plenty of latitude to screw things up. The shell or which is the name we give to the command interpreter. So the operator got a pair of tweezers and very carefully fished the moth out of the relay. Because you all read the mythical man month. And the best motivator in the world for programming is, is scratching your niche. Developers, 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 developers. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sourcecraft podcast. Today we continue with the second part of our three-part series on developer onboarding by chatting with Lamore Bergman. Lamore's career spans many storied companies. She's been an engineering manager at Sun Microsystems and VMware, Director of Engineering of DigitalOcean's Cloud Compute Division, and she's now Director of Mentorship at Power to Fly, helping women in technology up-level and make big career moves. She shares with us her approach to ensuring knowledge transfer, how to onboard people into legacy code, and talks about what has changed over the past 20 years for new software engineers. Stay tuned. All right, so I'm here with Lamore Bergman, uh, who is a former director of engineering at DigitalOcean, and she's now director of a mentorship program, Power to Fly, whose mission is to help women grow their careers. Uh, Lamore, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Ben. My pleasure to be here today. Awesome. So, you know, as you know, we're talking about engineering onboarding and trying to understand how different engineering organizations handle onboarding. Uh, I kind of want to kick things off and just ask for uh, an overview. Like, what was onboarding like at DigitalOcean, you know, both non-technical and the overall experience? Absolutely. I'll I'll be happy to share that and uh, just... uh... Uh, things may have changed since then because I'm not working there for over a year. Uh, DigitalOcean, I started working there at the beginning of 2016. It's the first time I worked fully remote. And I, to be honest, I was very anxious at the beginning how it's going to be like, especially because I was in a leadership position. So I was a little bit skeptical at the beginning. How is it going to be like leading people remotely? The onboarding process at DigitalOcean is the best I've ever seen at any company I worked at. Uh, It starts with, uh, again, things probably have changed because of COVID, but before then, typically Mm -hmm. the first week uh, you would travel to the headquarters, which is in New York, in Manhattan, Mm -hmm. and uh, you'll get an opportunity to meet some people there, potentially sometimes people... Uh, who work with you um, were traveling as well. So you had an opportunity to meet with them in the office because the teams were, you know, about 50% remote and 50% in office. Uh, And the company had a very, very robust onboarding process, which started by obviously by the people team, Mm -hmm. introducing the company, a little bit of history about the company, and, you know, all the benefits and all that. And, you know, you had a lot of tasks you had to do from IT. It was mm-hmm. very, very organized. Like you had a checklist of what you need to uh, achieve in the first day and then in the first week with yeah. checkboxes and reminders and all that jazz. And also what I really liked, you got an opportunity to hear an onboarding session, which lasted about an hour, from each department leader or department representative, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it 
it was not all happening in the first week. There were ongoing onboarding sessions that happen. I think back then it was about every two weeks. Probably things have changed since. Yeah. About different departments. It could be finance. It could be marketing. could be product, engineering. Each department had their own session. And what I really liked about it, you really felt connected to the company. And mm-hmm. you felt, well, I get an opportunity to hear about what other people are doing here, right? Especially when coming from engineering, you think everything is surrounding around you. And then yeah. you hear that, oh, there are actually <laughs> other people in the company that do a lot of things. That's awesome. So, you know, as, as like a new hire on the engineering team, I would get this kind of spiel of ongoing concerns and top priorities from the, the department heads of, of all the other functions like marketing, sales, and um, uh, product and, and things like that. Is, is that? Uh, not necessarily about top priorities. It could be just describing the department, describing Ah, what they do, how they do it. Like it was for design team or product, like product team, for example, would, you know, kind of highlight all the products the company has, you know, and the roadmap and all that. So depending on the, you know, just to get you an understanding of of the company and, and, and the different functions. That's awesome. Uh, so you kind of get situated um, within the business and you understand, you know, what where you fit into to the big picture. What about the technical uh, onboarding side of that? And I know that, you know, a lot of this is kind of uh, team specific, mm-hmm. um, but at, at your level as a director, um, what sort of things were you thinking about in terms of uh, technical onboarding, onboarding the code base, getting people ramped up on tools, uh, technologies, uh, frameworks, that sort of thing? Definitely. So, as I said, like the company had an engineering onboarding. And when I started, the engineering was much smaller than when I left. So mm-hmm. when I started, everything was relatively small and people knew each other. Most engineering, you know, people knew each other. When I left, obviously, it was not the case. Uh, yeah. We had an engineering onboarding uh, session. Like usually some someone from the veterans, from, like from the people with the most seniority of the company would do a technical overview of the architecture. But again, mm-hmm. as things as we grew, it wasn't obviously possible because there were multiple products, multiple teams. It was just too much. So there will be a generic engineering overview, and then each department, like for for example, a late compute, there was network storage. Like every every different team will do their own onboarding, which includes typically a high level architecture overview, and mm-hmm. onboarding of like. How do you deploy, how do you set up the environment, the development environment, the tools, you know, all that things. Um, and then team specifics about the code base. Um, some would give some tasks on your mm-hmm. first week, deploy your first code, depending obviously on the team. Um, they will team specific things. Yeah, that makes sense. As the code base, you know, grew, you know, obviously DigitalOcean, actually, you know, how big was the company when you first joined and, and how big was it when you left? So when I joined, we were, I think, around 150 people in total. And when I left, it was crossing the 600. Wow. Okay. So I imagine that growth presents a lot of challenges. And, you know, especially as you bring on all those people, you got to figure out how to onboard them and, and make them effective. How, how did the onboarding process change as the, the company grew and, and the, the engineering team and the code base grew? I think it changed mainly. It, it uh, really forces us to be more um, process-oriented, to document more versus like one person telling another. Initially, it was more about, oh, go meet with this guy or this girl. girl. You know, yeah. meet with both people. They will tell you, they'll show you. 
and it turns to more, okay, those are the pages, you know, they describe all the information. There was still a personal, right? We usually try to match a buddy for everyone that started. This is your yeah. buddy, typically someone from the same team that will meet with them and, and will help them, uh, you know, until they, you know, basically as long as they need. But still, a lot of that relies on reading materials and, and doing some things individually rather than, oh, go sit with this person and they will show you everything. Got it. So you're putting more things into writing, writing up more documentation, because um, it's it's harder to ensure people have the proper onboarding experience just through kind of osmosis and, and informal yeah. conversations and, and yeah. things like that. That makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, from talking to a couple of other engineering leaders, one challenge um, that arises due to this solution is that, you know, documentation, especially onboarding documentation, uh, can sometimes get out of date, you know, because you write them and then time passes and it's not always top of mind. Uh, was that an issue that you saw uh, at all at DigitalOcean? And, and if so, how did how did you kind of deal with that? Absolutely. So we had one thing that uh, helped us a little bit. I don't know if it's a good thing, but uh, we had, obviously, because DigitalOcean is a cloud infrastructure provider, so everything is live, you know, running all the time. So you have to have 24-7 on-call rotations. We had on-calls. And as we grew, we need to onboard people also to on-call. Like when someone joined, they, they weren't on-call the first day, right? Only after they been a certain amount of time at the company and they felt comfortable, they would join an on-call rotation. And for the on-call, at least in my organization, we try to do on-call training. So the training included a lot of things like troubleshooting and all that, but also high level because I had some, some initial, you know, I had some challenges in my team about how to set up the on-call rotation so it would be not too small, not too big. So sometimes people had to be on-call on areas that they weren't maybe very familiar and the on-call rotation also forced us to create trainings and to update them because really someone cannot be on call if they don't know the code base or not, don't know what's going on. And it Got was it. actually very helpful also for onboarding new people. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. What about, um, you know, the difference between junior and senior engineers in terms of how they uh, onboard? Um, you know, as you grow as a company, you get people with a wide range of uh, experience levels coming in. Um, are the things that uh, you notice and that, that are different between how these uh, two different sets of, of engineers onboard? And do you tailor specific uh, parts of the process to each of them? Or is it more like, you know, have a single standard and uh, we'll kind of react to each individual on an individual basis? I don't think we're big enough in order to start tailoring that. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, in my organization, we didn't hire many junior developers, at least developers, at least in the time I was there. Yeah. We did have a very successful internship program that resulted mm -hmm. in several hires. So we did experience a very, very junior developers joining versus very senior developers joining. Yeah. Uh, when a seasoned developer joins, uh, the expectation from them is to be able to do a lot of things ind independently to be mm -hmm. proactive, to, to reach out to whoever they need to. Usually it's not one person, right? As the code base grows, the company grows, no one knows everything. Uh, different people are more familiar with different parts of the code. So we yeah. expected someone seasoned, more senior, to be more proactive. Yeah, we, as I said, we matched them with someone. Uh, we had all the documentation in place, but eventually they had to really do a lot of independent reading, learning, and reach out. 
when someone very junior joins, especially an intern, the expectations are entirely different. We expect, expect them to be less independent and less proactive. We do want proactiveness at all levels, but again, because those people don't come with a lot of experience, a lot of them, it's their first job, uh, we do more hand-holding, meaning we try starting with smaller things, setting up their own local development environment, maybe not the full deployment to the you know production, first like the, the local development environment, and giving them smaller tasks. So they can start small, maybe with some small bug fixes, in, you know, instead of overwhelming them with the entire architecture on the first day. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. It sounds like, you know, some other companies that we, uh, I've talked to, they have kind of like a, a boot camp program for, for new engineers. It sounds like DigitalOcean didn't have that. It was, you know, let's get you onboarded to the actual engineering team as quickly as possible, uh, provide you with docs, provide you with kind of the high level architecture overview, and then, you know, set clear goals and you kind of drive yourself in acquiring the, the pieces of knowledge and context that you need. Is that kind of the, the overall philosophy? Uh, overall, but again, I'm speaking on behalf of, you know, people I led, so I cannot speak on behalf of the, the entire company. Um, and, and again, each team may have been a little bit different. Also, I was because I was overseeing multiple teams, I was not like in the bits and bytes of everything. What about this tension between ensuring consistency versus, you know, giving individual teams the freedom and flexibility to tailor their onboarding experiences to to their specific needs? Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, striking the right balance there? Yeah, I think it's it doesn't go only on onboarding; it goes in general yeah. to the processes a company have, which tooling you use, and all that. Uh, obviously, when a company is small, when things are starting off, it's free for all, right? Everyone does pretty much whatever they feel like. And as the company grows and matures, there are more standards. Yep. DigitalOcean is no different. So as the company grew, there are more standards around, okay, which tools. But there was never like a very strict rule. You have to use this editor. You have to use this. You have to use this. And hmm. each team had different onboarding and had different, you know, even, you know, doing Agile, they had variants each team you know some run scrum team some you know did other things it was never like completely like uh, strict that everyone have to do exactly the same thing there was some freedom but there yeah. were some things like deployment continuous integration all that there was less freedom got it so the standardization was more on would you say it's more like on the ops side because you know at the end of the day you have to kind of deploy this I single think, i think more on the ops side yeah on the processes um again it was not exactly like heaven right there was still a lot of work to do but it was leaning towards more you know uh, standardizing that uh, versus you know um having everything free for all everyone can do whatever they want one of the things that we were talking about earlier is this uh, issue of legacy code. And we've seen this across many engineering organizations as they grow, right? You know, when your company is younger, the code base is younger, there's less legacy code. As you become wildly successful uh, and your team grows a lot, there's more and more existing code to deal with. How does that change who you hire for, how you onboard them, and what sort of things that you look for to, to make them successful? Yeah, I think my organization had probably the most legacy code than any, any others because 
and the droplet product that you know I led among others was the you know the, the original product right so and and there were new products that came in later so I had the most legacy code I think it depended which team or um, we, which exactly you know we hired for what role and how much they had to you know to handle legacy code we would be transparent about it during the interview process again not to try to scare, scare them off but at least that they know what they're getting into it's not that like they only need to, to, to worry about legacy code it's not like a maintenance job but part of the job and and really based on that a lot of times we figure out if they are fit or maybe they are fit on a different team I don't think there's a company that hires people unless it's like a brand new startup that is starting everything from scratch that hires only people that write new things right? Anywhere you go, there is, also, there is always code that needs to be maintained. And engineers, by nature, they like to write something new. They don't like to maintain. So there's always a balance. And we try to make sure that someone joins them and understand that they need to also um, you know, maintain or fix or whatever um, touch legacy. And it may not be in the language they feel most comfortable with or whatever. And, and based on that, we'll figure out if, if this person is a fit or not. So you're, you're mostly able to hire great people, it sounds, who, who are able to deal yeah, with. Yeah. Um, and it, as I understand it, the code base that was the initial product, that was originally written in Perl. And then uh, later they migrated to, to Go and, and kind of changed uh, a lot of the architecture around it. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it. What do, you, what do you look for? Like, how do you tell that, like, okay, this person is going to be able to take on this, this very large and complex task and, and make forward progress? Yeah, I think I think it's hard to know, right? First of all, being transparent helps, but mm-hmm. also trying to figure out uh, from the past how they dealt in situations where they had to to deal with the legacy code base, how they were able to basically uh, look at someone else's code if they can give an example of you know situations where they they had challenges with potentially debugging or trying to understand what this person was thinking about when they wrote this code. And and then you get, you can try to understand if this person really done that or they are, you know, getting away from this, like getting away from fire. <laughs> Makes sense. So you, you just kind of ask them to talk about past experiences and see how yeah. they describe it. Were they able to like work productively or, or is this yeah, kind of like and, a... And we also, at some point, uh, when I was still league engineers, we had in our interview process, we took a, sni- a, a code snippet yeah. and we uh, asked people to look at that code and tell us what is it, what it is doing. Oh, interesting. So you actually tested for like ability to read and quickly understand. Read code. code. It was just a piece of code. Yeah. It did something that had some logic. I don't remember what it was, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and we asked people, okay, can you tell us what it does? That's really fascinating. I think that's, uh, I might have to steal that <laughs> for, oh. for our, own, our own interview process. Because I feel like, you know, the tendency is you have people write code uh, and, and you optimize on that. But then, especially as the company scales, I feel like, you know, more and more time spent, you know, reading and understanding code and figuring out like, you know, where your change is going to fit in. Yeah. Cool. Another challenge that we've come across um, on growing engineering teams that ties into onboarding is transferring historical knowledge, uh, especially from you know original authors and maintainers to the folks who kind of uh, inherit the code base. Um, how do you make sure that knowledge is transferred, and what do you do when it isn't? I think it, it, it's inevitable. At some point, you're going to run into a situation where there's an area of code where you need to go and make some change into it, and 
no one at the company actually yeah. understands how it came to be. So, um, yeah, how do, you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, so first of all, as I mentioned, we had this on-call on training. I think th those were really helpful in trying to kind of uh, um, keep some of the information, right? But there is never 100%, and also there is a limit to how much you can invest in documentation and whatever. Um, yeah. And we did have situations where there were code that no one knew. No one wrote, no one worked on it. You know, the, whoever wrote it left. And we were looking for someone who is willing to take the challenge, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, uh, so you'll be surprised that some people take that as a challenge and actually are fascinated by that. Some people are not. Yeah. Some people are, are kind of natural code archaeologists. Yeah. Cool. As kind of a, a last parting note here, you know, right now in your, in your current role, um, you know, you spend a lot of time mentoring people and, and advancing their, their career development. And you've had a, a long and very interesting career working at, you know, some of the like big names, you know, Sun Microsystems, VMware, DigitalOcean. So you, you've seen a lot. When you, when you think back to what it was like when you were, you know, that junior engineer first out of college and you're onboarding to your own code base, are, are there tips that you would give people now? And to what extent has the world of code changed? So it's yes and no. I'll tell you why. I mean, it's it's not different because, well, like I started, there was code and I had to go and understand what the hell is going on there. And I think the tip I, I would give people who are starting out, don't be ashamed of admitting you don't know something or you don't understand and just ask. I think this is something I see a lot. Um, that some people are just, they go, they're go-getters, they ask, they, they try to reach out, they're very proactive. Some people are just, you know, they don't ask and they, they, are, they don't have the confidence. So that, that would be my number one tip. It's okay not to know. It's okay not to understand, especially when you're just starting out. Just go and ask and, and look for people who can help you. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot have changed since I started. Um you know, back then, uh, things were, I think, simpler in a lot of ways. Applications <laughs> were simpler. The scale was much smaller. There were not, like, distributed systems running yeah. and scaling like we do today. Open source, you know. The world has changed a lot. Yeah. It was more monolith applications, client servers, something relatively, you know, I don't know if to call it simple, but more manageable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, than what we run today, the workloads that uh, that are running today. Like, you cannot attach a, debug <laughs> a debugger and walk through it. Like, I remember I was debugging the code, walking through, like, there are a lot of, uh, you know, situations today that you cannot do that. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly feels that, you know, a decade or, or more ago, the quality of the tooling was a lot lower. There were certain things that, you know, I feel like, wow, you know, people actually had to make do with, with that. But at the same time, the amount of code that you had to deal with was, was a, a, a lot smaller back then too. So in, in some sense, you know, things get better, but uh, new challenges uh, present yeah, themselves. <laughs> for sure. Cool. Well, Lamar, thanks so much for, for taking the time to chat with us today and sharing your experience and, and insights on engineering onboarding. Really appreciate it. And yeah, thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. My pleasure. The Sourcegraph podcast is a production of Sourcegraph, the universal code search engine, which gives you fast and expressive search over the world of code you care about. 
Sourcegraph also provides code navigation abilities, like jump to dev and references, and code review, and integrates seamlessly with your code host, whether you're working in open source or on a big, hairy enterprise code base. To learn more, visit sourcegraph.com. See you next time.